Today, Alfie Bound comes on to talk about how technology is changing human desire, Chinese smart cars that know what your girlfriend wants for dinner, and why time travelers don't get horny. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Okay, so today on Good in Theory, we have Alfie Bound and... Is that right? It's yeah. it's brown without an R and not bow with an N. Yeah, no, that's yeah. totally right. And yeah, I, I, okay, yeah. That's, that's, it's unusual for people to get it right. Uh, yeah, cool. Well done. The history is uh, like I think I had some medieval peasants uh, in my ancestry who just couldn't spell and forgot the R. You know, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, um, my last name is uh, anglicization of a Chinese name, and they just kind of chucked in an R, uh-huh. which I guess they weren't <laughs> that good at saying before. So it's Mark instead of Mark. Anyway, Alfie is the author of a lot of books, including Enjoying It, Candy Crush and Capitalism, The PlayStation Dream World, and a new book we're going to talk about today called Dream Lovers, The Gamification of Relationships. So in general, Alfie talks and writes and thinks about tech and its effects on politics. And um, the most recent book is about desire and how new technologies love Love technologies, dating apps, dating simulators, porn, and so on are changing the nature of human relationships. So welcome, Alfie. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> and you did mention one other project you're working on that I'd, I'd love to tell people about, which is Sublation Press. Could you tell us a little uh, yeah, bit about that? Yeah, that's correct. That's right. I'm, I'm one of the new editors of a, a, new, a new publishing house, Sublation Press, and a media company, Sublation Media. can be found on YouTube at the moment, but the, the, the proper launch is coming. Uh, and it's just a theory publisher, so it'll be in, in many ways uh, and politics. But, you know, it'll be interesting to your listeners, I guess. We'll be publishing books, but also podcasts, YouTube videos, a whole kind of media thing. So people should should check it out. That'd be great. Nice. Is it, is any of it up yet? You got a YouTube yeah, channel going? Yeah, all or? of that is fully up and running. So that's that's all there for people to see, and there'll be more soon, too. All right. So Sublation Press on YouTube. Sublation Media. Sublation Media. Sublation Media. Great. So let's get into this book, Dream Lovers. Uh, I really like the book. It's full of interesting ideas and you know stuff I is going on in the world that I had never heard of. So let's just start at the basics. This is about how tech is changing desire. Can you give me an example of how that happens? Because I can see how tech can help us fulfill our desires like i want something and then i can use i don't know uber eats to get it um but how yeah how does tech change our desires yeah i mean that's a great question and the way you phrase this is really helpful i think because you know it's exactly what i argue in this book is that tech does not help us get what we want uh, that's the kind of wrong way of thinking about it. And that's the way that the sort of Silicon Valley techno capitalists would would want you to think about it, right? You already have your desires uh, and we just help you get there. Uh, and this is why it's difficult to live without Facebook or without uh, Deliveroo or Uber Eats or whatever, because these things allow you to get what you want quicker and easier than it before. And my argument is to kind of flip that around and say, well, actually, it, these technologies are more interested in, in changing what it is that you want than they are interested in giving you what you want. Uh, and so I was able to kind of argue this in a kind of quirky way by saying that this is a kind of revolution in desire, but for the most part, it's a kind of corporate revolution in desire. Uh, but let me give you an example, like, and this is an example, I, I mean, people that have heard me do podcasts and stuff before would have heard this because I always use this example, but... Uh, <laughs> 
I feel like it really embodies this situation. And it was, it's a kind of funny story from when I went to um, Hangzhou. I was in Hangzhou in East China. It's an amazing um, city, like uh, uh, amazing place to think about tech because it's a really ancient Chinese city uh, with loads of old architecture and, and, and stuff. But it's also where Alibaba uh, is, is based and was, was born. And so it's also, right, um, right. Part, it's like a prototype city in some ways for Alibaba's kind of, they call it city brain. Uh, and they have this place there called Cloud Town, which is their kind of Silicon Valley. So they're, they're using this. So just Ali, for the, for the, for the listeners, Alibaba is this like, uh, what is Alibaba? Well, it's a well, giant um, retail yeah, tech. The, the second biggest um tech company in china i mean people probably know from who jack ma is that he was the 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 founder uh-huh. of alibaba and uh-huh. so on but yeah so so basically along with um tencent who own wechat it's your sort of major uh you know tech company giant tech company it's it's, it's one of so you're in this town it's like the silicon <laughs> valley of the east yeah. run by this yeah. uh bajillionaire jack ma exactly exactly and um i was actually giving a talk about uh, WeChat, um, which is the Tencent one. And the, at the end of the talk, these two lawyers came up to me and, and I thought to myself, oh shit, <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble, you know, because I've been slagging off uh, and we, WeChat, you know, they are close to the, the Beijing government and so on. And I've been slagging off these things. I'm going to get in trouble here. Uh, and they said, oh, you, you, um, you hate, um, you hate WeChat and you hate Tencent. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, and they were like, oh, you must love uh, Alibaba. <laughs> And I was like, what? What? You're both evil. What are you, what are you talking about? But it turns out there, there is a history there. And people from Hangzhou are actually quite proud of Alibaba. And, you know, it, it's it's marketing campaign is this kind of local thing. So there are people in East China there who who sort of put, have an allegiance to this tech overlord and not the other one. You know, which- right. That's hilarious. It's like, oh, you know, you hate Facebook. You must love Google. Yeah, right. right exactly. Exactly. So it's slightly different way of thinking. But anyway, these guys said, do you want to come? And, uh, um, you know, they weren't bothered at all uh, about my critiques. So I suppose it shows my Western assumptions about China as well. were were off the mark, but, they invited me to cloud town and, and showed me all this technology and you know there's amazing stuff there they showed me like uh, traffic lights that um use facial recognition software to tell how old you are they like count your wrinkles and then decide how long you need to cross oh. a road based on the age of your face and stuff so that old people Terrifying. can have longer you know and anyway the, the most uh, i asked the guy who was taking me around uh, what's the most coolest thing you got you know <laughs> And he said, it's this car. And it was, a, it was, a, this is old now, you know, this was in 2018. Uh, and it was uh, a car made by Alibaba and Rover, which I think is a German car manufacturer. Um, and basically I was expecting him to say, oh, you know, this car is fast and it, or it's super safe. It can't crash or, you know, it can fly or something. But he was like, no, it, it knows when you're hungry and what you might like to eat before you know what you might like. Oh, <laughs> and at the time I thought I'll give over. I didn't think much of it. I just thought that's bollocks, uh-huh. you know, but, but when I later thought about this uh, and I, well, I asked uh, why, you know, so what, why does that matter? And it turns out that basically what's going on is you don't even know yourself that, you know, say at four o'clock on a Tuesday, you might like uh, Japanese ramen, but 
the car knows because it's it's uh, synced up with your smartphone. It reads through your history of movements of your photos, whatever else, and it, it learns your behaviour patterns in a really interesting and detailed way. And and it, it knows at four twenty what you might be likely to want at four thirty. So it then nudges you. It says, okay, why don't you go to this place? Uh, that you know, it, the car can <laughs> say to you, I'll even drive you there. You know, and um, I when I asked why, he said, well, it's simple, really. We just can drive traffic away from places that take cash or places that take WeChat pay and drive people towards places that take Alipay, which is Alibaba's kind of payment system. Uh, so I guess so in a nutshell, you have this car that yeah. tells you what to want, what you want to eat, but it's to like get you into the, yeah, in a nutshell, I can I mean, see, like, I can see why a car, if you've ever had a conversation <laughs> with a partner or something like, where do you want to eat? It'd be nice to appeal to a third party. It'd be nice if someone did know uh, what I wanted to I think on its own, you know, the example on its own doesn't sound like, it hardly sounds like we're living in this dystopia where our desires are controlled. But it shows a more fundamental and much more widespread thing about, you know, what is often called predictive technology, right? Predictive Mm. technology is is technology which predicts what we're going to want and tries to give it to us. But it shows that it's also interested in nudging you, right? Slightly changing, slightly modifying what it is that you want, right? So that it can have its own benefit. And in this case, it's a simple benefit. It's just that the company wants the the, the 0.1% profit that it gets from you're your using its own payment system. But what the, the bigger, broader point is that these new technologies are, you know, they are predicting what we want and in a sense giving us what we want, but they also have each their own agenda, which is kind of gently nudging mm. our desires and our, our de- in different directions, which is not just to suit us, but to suit them. Okay, so... I think that's super interesting. Let me just extrapolate a little from this uh, from this magic card that tells us what we want to yeah. eat. Um, so the the like the the dystopian end game is that yeah. the the car tells us everything that we want. So the things when we even think about what we want, we're just getting fed the information from this WeChat card that will only take us to the businesses and the restaurants yeah. on that network, and the rest of the world just be kinds of becomes invisible terra incognita <laughs> because they're on 10 the <laughs> network or something like this i mean i, I suppose the, the um literally speaking the critical piece of technology here is the smartphone rather than the car uh, and the way the car syncs up with that but sure. yeah i think in the dystopian end game of this you know the the phone literally decides what you want when you want it and how you're going to get it and through which mechanisms and and i actually think we are already in that kind of world, you know, it's, this is, well, that's what know. I was going to say is because, uh, you know, the way you're just, the car is a cuter example, but I mean, other websites like Yelp have had similar effects, right? You really saw a change. At least I think I saw a change in patterns to restaurants based on, uh, online reviews. So whatever made these top 10 lists, whatever had the highest mm. review in Toronto for, I don't know, Korean food or all of a sudden it became really crowded because people, they felt like a certain kind of thing, and which one's the best? Did consult the the rating site. Yep. Online reviews from strangers became a huge deal. So yeah, and, and I, I, I do agree. like we already are living there to a, yeah. a big extent. It looks like yeah, and I think we also need to uh, you know alongside those examples which seem not exactly innocent but 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 just kind of let's say corporate. We can I think it's also important to have like you know in mind companies 
that do this in a much more nefarious political way. Companies like Palantir and, you know, what was well known with the mm. Cambridge Analytica saga over here in the UK, you know, basically kind of, um, you know, consultancy firms that are data that use data driven approaches towards manipulating certain outcomes in the in the wider cultural and political world, you know. So the logic mm. of a company like Palantir, who basically helps you rig elections, you know, by using data approaches and, and uh, targeted advertising of, of various complicated kinds, is not that dissimilar to what you see at Alibaba. So I think, yeah, the, there are new patterns uh-huh. um, through, and, and it is all through the internet and our smartphones and and now computers. Uh, but there are new new strategies through which um, you know we can be sort of reshaped as the sort of citizens on the of the future who buy what we're what we're told when we're told who vote for what we're told when we're told and it's all of this is happening through a kind of data-driven transformation of desire and, and stuff so it's not it's not just about corporates there's also political motivations why why we might be influenced in certain ways great okay so i get that our desires and where they're pointed can be uh, manipulated by these nefarious giant corporations mm. through cars, websites, et cetera, new tech. Let's narrow it down a little to uh, relationships because that's the topic of the book or the yeah, title, right. you know? It's about it's about how people love, how they find connection. And you you argue that tech is even changing how that happens. So can you give me some examples of, of how it's working in that mm. domain? I mean, I suppose one way of thinking about this might be through dating apps, which we haven't really talked about. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, they, that's a huge one. Let's, yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's. Um, I think what interests me about this is is a kind of, and there's a long history of it. I mean, from the beginning, dating apps have always been oriented around these kind of particular groups. So you get things like. Um, you know, Guardian Soulmates, which is a popular one in the UK. That's very, or it's actually, um, it finished this year. Um, Was it real? Like, I thought maybe people were just writing those ads as trolls. No, you know? I mean, I think there are some <laughs> faked ones, but it was very much a real thing for years and years. Uh-huh. And that was your sort of middle class one. And then you'd have your sort of, you know, OK Cupid, which always would always start, OK Cupid always start with these questionnaires about who are you? And then it boxes you into a certain thing. You answer a hundred questions and matches it with a metric from another. So actually they were using strategies that data-driven companies use before data-driven companies were really doing this stuff, way before the explosion of like Cambridge Analytica and those kind of our awareness of these companies that were using data to, to sort of move things the way they wanted them. Um, but I think this, and then you get Christian Harmony, that's an old one. And then of course you also get these um, spoof and borderline spoof ones. Like there's... um. There's a dating site for farmers. That's a spoof one. Um, but there are also some real ones, like there's the Atlasophere, which is a dating site for Anne Rand's. Um, I had a good laugh at yeah. that one, uh, <laughs> like when I saw it a yeah. few years ago. But I, yeah, I was never quite convinced it was real. But I, I but, think what's hey. happening here is, you know, a kind of. Um, a kind of filter bubbling, I suppose, to use the sort of general discourse, a kind of filter bubbling of relationships. Uh, and and uh-huh. um, I think this is super interesting. And then you actually see sites like Trump.dating uh, and there's a sort of socialist one called Red Yenta, you know, and I think, <laughs> you know, this really actually is a embodiment, a symptom of where our political landscape is at the moment. You know, the, the fact that 
people people see desire. This is this is a connection between something like Trump dating is a perfect connection mm-hmm. between tr- desire and politics. It's basically saying, you know, if you know we, we want what ideally we'll have is a society where there's a kind of us and them. You know, what we will build relationships with people within this uh, bubble right. and not outside, and our desire will operate only within these limits. And and that is extremely interesting, I think, and kind of frightening. I yeah, I mean for <laughs> sure. Now, but you said something there, right? You said that these websites like Trump.dating and I don't know, I'm skeptical about how popular that is. Yeah, 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 yeah. That one's kind of maybe world. Yeah. But um you said these kinds of politically oriented dating apps are a symptom of our political landscape. Now, obviously there might be a feedback loop, but if if the dating the dating stuff is a symptom of politics, then how is it a cause of politics, right? So is it that the apps and the tech are shaping our desires and have political agendas, or is it that we have political agendas and it's mm. a more polarized time, therefore um, yeah. these apps are responding to that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, this this was one of the things I, I sort of really tried to sort of get to in, in the book because it's clearly not it's clearly not one or the other. You know, these things have to work mm. kind of dialectically or, or in it, as you say, like a kind of feedback loop. So because for for example, you know, obviously like obviously you do there is an existing for example, something like Pokemon Go. Um, you know, there is an existing desire for this kind of uh. a Pikachu or something, right? <laughs> and then the app, you know, allows you to, to go and, and, and get this Pikachu and then you do that. But then that does not just, that doesn't just give you something that you already wanted, right? The Pikachu has, ex- has existed before, existed in the 90s or from 96 or whatever. So uh. there's a history of that desire and it, it has to come into being. And then, but then the technology doesn't just stop, doesn't stop at, uh, giving you what you want, it also kind of uh-huh. modifies that or, t- or gets that desire to t- kind of turn a corner. So, you know, there's a difference between, I mean, so you could speak to someone, if we just like time traveled to the uh, 60s, I'm sure we could find someone who said, well, I'd only go, I'm a socialist, I'd only go out with another socialist. Of course, we've always, we've always right. had, there's a longer history of wanting to find a partner with a similar political agenda to you, or maybe from a similar class to you. Yeah, but when that becomes kind of formalized as a piece of technology, which inherits that desire and makes that the norm, and then becomes, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that then becomes the starting point for desire instead of like the end point, you know? So, so it's not, this is why it's complicated. I mean, and, and, you know, when a good example of this is when okay, Cupid got in trouble for being racist because they were like matching people only with people of the same races as them, this kind of broke out into a mini little scandal. And, um, uh-huh. you know, actually it was really interesting because some right wing kind of data people started saying, well, this proves, this proves that we should have a kind of eugenics, you know, because people <laughs> do desire the people that are like them and we should stick to our race groups, you know, mm-hmm. but then, and then, okay, Cupid answered this by saying, look, it's not our fault because we only respond to what you desire. So if you lot out there in the population right. are racist, how can we be to blame when the algorithm 
is racist as well. But of course, that's that's not that's not a sufficient answer, is it? Because it's all very well that obviously racism exists in the in the population right. when it becomes immortalized in an algorithm, which then is the blueprint for how society will function. You're embedding that racism deeply into the structure of society, right? Which is why right. facial recognition software picking up racial biases was a massive issue. So I think, and so it kind of know, comes back. It's, it's you know you feed a little bias into the system, but then it builds a system that has yes, uh, yeah. bias default built into it. And so when you go to it, that like kind of just reinforces this like a. Uh, Exactly these things that we don't want in people's in people's minds. That's exactly it. That's exactly that's exactly it. So so I love yeah. like <laughs> that reasoning conceptually, but I do want to push back a little on it empirically. Yeah. Um, and so it seems a point you're making is that okay, Cupid, other dating apps are kind of matching people based on similarities, class, race, whatever. Uh, it's sort of they're getting people that are too similar and putting them together, and that's making it harder because everyone else starts out and the machine is assuming you want someone similar and that's where they send you first. They're kind of nudging you in that direction. But in my experience, at least, when I use Tinder, I would, part of the big appeal to me was that it would get me out of the kind of closed loop of my social circle. So Mm -hmm. when I was an academic or before when I was a grad student, then I can meet all the graduate students and lawyers and professionals that I wanted. Yeah. But to kind of like break out of that social group, you need some other pretext. And I found that, especially in the early days before they started asking people for their educational background, uh, Tinder was really good for that. They had this aleatory element that did break people out. And there seems to be some empirical backup. They've done some studies and they found that either, either that online people who meet online are more, create more diverse couples or at least it's it's the same yeah yeah but it doesn't seem to indicate that they're sorting people according to race mm. as uh yeah okay yeah. so i mean what what i think about that i mean i i I, I don't, yeah, I don't really, uh, I prefer to just make wild conjectures than, uh, look at real evidence, but, <laughs> but, but I think you are onto something with it. I mean, and I, I, I sort of, um, but I mean, I think maybe for me, the key thing in what you said was, it's interesting that you said, especially in the early days, because again, this is not mm. evidenced, um, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, but my, um, my impulse, uh, <laughs> my impulse is to say this, that this is theory. Do yeah. not be, do not be a dominator or bound by empirics. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, exactly no my, but my imp- I mean I teach the history of the internet that's what I teach at my uni and I love teaching this degree it's mm-hmm. extremely interesting and one of the things we look at is the history of social media and look at you know basically it's, it's common to, to say this I suppose but to cut a long story short you know when the internet exploded there was this sense that it would be very democratizing completely equalizing break down a load of you know existing limitations in in the kinds of people you could meet and it would essentially diversify things quite significantly and I think in early social media and perhaps in early dating sites you actually do see that reflected out so people who if you i mean i'm somebody who hasn't probably experienced that anecdotally because i've only ever lived in like london hong kong you know major cities but you know Uh certainly for people who live in more remote areas than those main the, the least remote ones they were highly likely to meet people outside of their sort of relatively small group or network um and that right. would kind of diversify things and the internet clearly had 
I would say had and, and perhaps still has loads of potential to play that role. And this is what is so frustrating about the way in which newer forms of social media have come to organize and structure us because they should be doing the opposite. The internet should uh-huh. be a place where we could absolutely diversify and break out of uh, class, gender, race, educational bubbles and create Mm -hmm. new forms of solidarity across communities in in new and interesting ways. And I believe, I do think this desire would function in those ways. You know, we would, there would, there is, you would find desire operating across those boundaries, but that is not in the interests of the people who unfortunately have taken have essentially stolen the internet away from p- people and it's it's no longer this open space that was given to us by Tim Berners-Lee for free it's a space that is run by a very small group of power holders in whose interests it is to organize us into groups and curate us into groups and prevent us crossing those boundaries so so basically i don't okay, i can't i want to i want to separate two points there right okay so so point one is this sort of consolidation of the internet before there was like it was open it was free you know the the meme way of putting it that uh, you know has stuck in my head for years is you know in in the 90s it was the internet's going to be millions of sites all different from one another and now it's Four yeah. sites that are only made up of screen grabs of each other, yeah. uh, and and that's that's fine and frightening. But why is it that it's in their interest uh-huh. to sort people into categories and make sure that desire doesn't cross those categories? Because again, at least if it's the intuitive identity categories that people are thinking of, it doesn't seem like that's substantiated, right? It does seem like you know if uh, I don't think it's deliberate. You know, I don't think okay. that the. I think it comes down to the way in which they um, organized people for advertising purposes. Like, so they, right. they wouldn't necessarily. I don't think the, you know, the overlords of Twitter and Facebook. I mean, like, I don't think they're capable of it. You know, you've seen Zuckerberg talk right. in front of the same. <laughs> you know, they didn't say right. Let's create this so that. Um, you know, so that we can have a future of manipulating politics. But they just wanted people organized in that way because it partly because when they start selling advertising space, that's that's sufficient. So you can say people who uh-huh. drink lattes that also watch art house cinema, that's the people we should send this particular message <laughs> to. You know, so quite simple. But then then very quickly people realize and and companies mobilize realizing oh we can actually use this to right, concretely right <laughs> and if people even start self-sorting a bit then uh, companies they notice that these people are forming yeah. groups and they can act on those groups and that kind of solidifies the yeah and, and, and for me to try and try and reconnect this to, to my own because i suppose this stuff's been said but to reconnect this to this question mm-hmm. of desire like it's difficult to do but i think um I think what you're looking at there is that is connected to this whole logic of the space where it's like, well, these people want this and these people want this Mm -hmm. and these people want this. So let's create these bubbles around these groups. And and what, so Mm -hmm. that does, it means that, you know, you, you, that, that also trains you to, to want those things, you know, you, you're, you're, so, so I think, I think, I think it's absolutely true. I, I was working on an article a couple of years ago about politics in, in dating apps actually. And uh, I never I never saw the light of day, but I did do some really interesting research. I talked to some people from, uh, you know, the IAC group, oh, yeah. OkCupid, cool. whatever. And um, they shared some of their data with me. And what this woman was saying was interviewing was that 
for the past 15 years, actually, politics has been becoming more and more important to people in terms of dating. So people have started to sort themselves and all this recent stuff about first, you know, OkCupid, but all the apps have kind of followed suit and allowed more political options. They're kind of following what people were doing. People were posting more photos with campaign t-shirts or or writing political things in their bios. And you could see it happening. A lot of these apps are responding by allowing you to state your political affiliation or to even state more. They go yeah. from, say, you can choose liberal or conservative because now, now there's like nine or something on some of these oh, websites. Oh, really? That's really interesting yeah. because um, it, I always found it interesting that Bumble had like liberal conservative but not didn't have any sort of socialist or left leaning. Right. Yeah. So it was, anyway, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, the thing is, for 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 it to make sense, I guess it depends how niche you want to go, right? So <laughs> yeah. For for corporations to sort people into groups, the group has to be big enough to market. Well, yeah. To. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Um. So so if you can keep them in relatively large chunks, great. But if the smaller chunks, you know, if there's enough anarcho-syndicalists yeah, then they, uh, they to support a, yeah. a, a location-based dating app, then, <laughs> then believe me, there, there'll be an option on, on these yeah, apps, but... I think. So let's, let's maybe come back <sighs> to this topic of technology and desire from a, a slightly different direction. Because... One of the things I liked most about your book is just all these insights it has into how desire works. And of course, sort of in general, because you draw a lot on psychoanalysis and some deconstruction uh, theory. And so there's stuff I'd I'd love to get into and have you explain some of these points about desire and then maybe bring out how that operates with tech. So I love all this stuff where you're cutting against the idea that people have these natural desires that they're just trying to satisfy. And so one of the big points you make is that desire is always social in a number of ways. Mm-hmm. It's not just yeah. our own personal desires. So tell me a bit more about that. How, how, do, how do we get these? Yeah, right. No, I, I think that's a really interesting, important question. And like part of the, the background, I suppose, for what I'm saying and what all these conversations we're having. And like, I mean, I guess some people exist who will like uh, argue against this and say that there are certain things, such a thing as natural desire. And, you know, ultimately that doesn't matter if those, you know, I don't need to convince every biologist or whatever, because, you know, our desire is so mediated by uh, technology and media. Um, And I mean, technology in the sense of the long history of technology, you know, so that that it doesn't really matter anymore if there is a natural desire because we've come so far from it that it's kind of negligible, I would say. So I think we'd love, this is an interesting way into it, you know, clearly we could say that from at least the 19th century, well, maybe even the medieval period, like with courtly love and romance, you know, look at like Mm. Shakespeare and so on, you know, literature begins to play a key role as a technology which, um, you know, influences what love is. And it does, of course, no one's going to argue with that. Literature changed what romance was. It changes expectations about families, relationships, you know, it in a way literature teaches Uh a population how to love. That's that's what it tried to do and and succeeded in doing. Love that yeah. so like everyone's reading everyone's reading jane austen and uh yeah and and sure there are some modeling their relationships after well, that well i mean it's not quite as direct as that like but but clearly you know there there are so many features of society which 
borrow tropes and, and learn from our mm-hmm. culture. That's the role of culture, you know, is to sort of shape a society in that way. So, you know, and then, and then at a certain point, you know, films probably Hollywood films take over, you know, and I know it's, it's almost a cliche that to say that, you know, you know, Hollywood romances and, and chick flicks and whatever, you know, uh-huh. they, but they do, they, they rom-com they, brain poisoning, rom-coms, you know, they, they play a role, yeah. don't they? They don't, they don't, tell you exactly what to want and you don't desire exactly what you're told just as in the same way you don't want to shoot someone because you've played a video game about shooting but our products of of culture do do they are technologies which shape romance and shape love Uh and shape desire and now and so my book kind of tries to to say that you know it was literate or maybe we could even say it was religion that did that first Mm -hmm. then it was literature Mm -hmm. then it was films now it's algorithms and so we've been through a kind of history where the main thing which shapes love and desire has changed. And, and a world where religion shapes love and desire is well different to a world where algorithms shape love and desire. So how do we make sense of like the present moment in relation to this history right. where lots of different things have shaped what we kind of think of and, and how we love so and stuff? In, in the book, you make this point using uh, de Beauvoir, right? And you talk about how she says that you can learn about love, romantic love, and then that's what you want. You want this kind of relationship and you see how it is. And then you have sex with someone and then all that desire you have to be in a certain kind of romantic relationship, you kind of put that on the person that you're having sex with and that's how you fall in love. But the point here is that the way you even get this idea of what romance and love is, is a kind of social indoctrination. And then that gets put on individuals rather than you just meet someone and then naturally have all these, all these feelings. Is that, yeah. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And you, you don't, I mean that, you know, you don't naturally, you know, I don't think anyone still thinks that like, but like, imagine if you went back, I'm trying to think of the most simple way to put this point. Imagine if you like, I mean, I suppose the movies, some movies do show it as possible, but you know, if you went back to like the medieval, like my view is this, if you went back in the time machine to uh-huh. like the 14th century, it would be literally impossible to experience probably desire and maybe even love. I mean, certainly love and maybe even desire <laughs> because, you know, you, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't, the objects that you have been trained mm. to feel desire for literally did not exist then. You know, so whereas you know the the movies go help. on, okay, okay, <laughs> all right. I like I like this. This is counterintuitive. Yeah, I go back to the Middle Ages, and all of a sudden, yeah. So the, the movies, the objects you, of my desire don't exist. You, you so like, presumably, I desire other people, yeah. but there are other people. So what's well? No, I think you've been trying. The movies have told us to think. You what? You go back there, mm-hmm. and suddenly there's a, a lovely blonde damsel or something and it's love at yeah, first Bill and Ted, they go back and they fall in love with princesses yeah. but but in reality i think you would arrive there and your desire would basically be non-existent because the objects okay. that you have you know come to desire we've changed we would change so much they just literally wouldn't exist the, the objects of your desire. anyway it's a completely stupid um do you think we would get hungry as well <laughs> we would what we would not get hungry for any of their food as well. Uh, we would have to. I think we would have to eat in a. <laughs> it would be like eating, you know, soylent in the uh-huh. in the spaceship. You know, you wouldn't get the pleasure from eating. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I. Uh, it wouldn't taste good. No, I'm pushing back a little, but I've been to medieval art museums, and, <laughs> and I will say. <laughs> but, but for okay, what about this example? Um, I don't think an avocado tasted as good before Instagram. 
<laughs> and I think. <laughs> um, oh, okay. That's look. I I think that might be right, but I want to uh, get into that a little more because one of the other really interesting points in your book is about how. Okay, so we're talking about literature affects people's desires, right? Literature tech of all kinds. Sometimes it was religion, sometimes it was literature. Now it's these platforms. And one of the things that has changed uh, that you bring out nicely in, in your argument is that because our desires are now so much mediated by our smartphones and social media rather than other uh, in-person experiences, they become much more based on visual and auditory stimulus because you can't put smell and taste online. You can't post what something tastes like. So all you can do is take a photo of it and post that. And now that changes like maybe our relationship to food and maybe other people, we want them to be photogenic and, and postable. Yeah. Taste is, is part of this book because of this thing I was saying before. It's, it's intimate. It's, it's supposedly natural. Uh, like mm-hmm. sexual desire, we often think of taste as something chemical. Um, but there's obviously more to it than that. And it shows that, that all senses, and, and including things we find in, instinctive, often find instinctive, are wrapped up. And technology is offering an opportunity for those mm-hmm. things. Even the deepest things, like our very senses, which we often think of as biological rather than ideological, can be manipulated and put to use in these kind of systems. So I, I guess that relates to this thing about, you know, and, and it's actually, um, you know, the, my, the theory comes from Roland Barthes, who wrote this great book, uh, A Lover's Discourse, um, where he basically says that when we experience desire for the first time, and he uses these great words like ravishment, you know, when you see something mm. and you're like ravished by it or um, enamoration, like when you're enamored by something, when, when you see something and just feel that sort of first initial burst of desire where suddenly you really want that thing. Right. And um, yeah. he, he says that the most important thing is not the object itself, but the scene in which it appears. So, you know, he gives great examples from literature as well. Right. But basically, like, um, you know, when you I mean, I mean, I think Romeo and Juliet scene, even if you just picture the Baz Luhrmann film where they meet through the fish tank at the party and so on, you know, and on the one hand, it's presented as something that happens between subject and object between the person and the thing that they desire. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, clearly it's, it's also the whole scene, right? The fish, the tank, the party, the families, the the background, Uh the network, which makes desire possible. Uh, And he is deliberately using that sort of, a drama a language from drama and theater right that the scene I think of uh, did you did you see wayne's world yeah yeah when uh <laughs> he first sees cassandra she's on stage playing and dreamweaver starts playing he's, yeah that's his moment exactly. of enamoration you know it's and that's and, deliberate yeah. that's a comment on that i totally that's a great great example of it um and and so anyway the point is that now this scene is is now more of a screen you know, and the, the way in which mm. apps like Instagram, but also dating apps, which are kind of like Tinder, whatever you might want to list, the way in which they present us with these objects of desire and allow us to sort of, you know, even Deliveroo or Uber Eats, allow us to sort of flick through or browse these objects of desire. They're, cr- mm. they're curating a, a scene where desire is possible and asking you to be the, yeah, Wayne's World <laughs> character or be a Romeo or Juliet and, and feel that. (laughs) Okay. So my pushback on that is that when you picture 
Cassandra and Wayne's World on stage or Leo and Claire Danes looking at each other through the fish tank. You can see how this is a romantic scene where people might fall in love. But when you're just looking at a dating app, the scene isn't that great. What, what is happening, though, and I think this is interesting, is people are, without the theory, are intuitively trying to set their own scenes to cr- construct themselves as objects of desire, which is why people are always taking photos of themselves in front of like backgrounds. They're like big lineups. If there's a stunning view, everyone wants to just go, instead of sit in it, to go have a photo in front of it. And it seems like it has to do with this kind mm. of scene setting, but that individuals have become more aware of it because now the technology has created the the context in which they can they can set their own scene um it's sort of made it obligatory and it's really changed this kind of self-presentation people have become without the theory really aware of how important it is how important scene setting is in presenting themselves Mm -hmm. as objects of desire or interest Mm -hmm. so yeah, I guess I guess that that's my response to it, and I think that's like uh, I don't know. What do you think about this idea yeah. of a pressure to to start setting our own scene, whereas people might not have been as attentive to this point hmm. before tech gave us yeah. the power and therefore the obligation to be more attentive to the scenes that we set. No, I think I think it, I think that's right, and, and I think that's that's part of it. You know, I don't quite think it's I don't quite agree so much about the. The question mm-hmm. of the platform just providing you with the interface and you being the one who sets the scene. Because I think, you know, for example, this has dramatically changed, you know, and I'm also really interested in, like, I guess what you call it, hacker culture or like uh-huh. older histories of the internet. Like, you know, I think the fact that you can't move your profile picture from the left hand corner on Facebook is extremely <sighs> prohibitive. Uh-huh. You know, and you know, okay. <laughs> on on MySpace or something, you could have done, you know, uh, or on GoFundMe. Absolute you know. nightmare to yeah. me, but yeah. Go so, but so I think that the um, what is often appears like, oh, you know, all of the decisions are yours. Like Facebook, the way let's set that as an example, but Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, you know, all of the decisions are yours. We just lay them out like this. But the process of them mm. all being laid out in the same order is extremely influential in in, in right. setting the scene of what this world is like and and so yeah and, and i think then you see don't you what the then your point really comes in you see people taking decisions so in the making decisions of actual right down to what they eat and what they do because they already experience the thing as if it was displayed in this interface that they can imagine it being displayed in so like i'm not saying i'm not talking about just you know, uh, 16 year old, 17 year old Instagram influence influencers. I'm talking about 50 year old academics. They don't even realize they're doing it, but you know, we're so conditioned to read our world Mm. through a platform like Facebook that we begin to actually do things subconsciously because that's how they will be read. Right. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) This is, I mean, this is the point that I think is really interesting and that I was trying to get to. Mm. It's that, it's not so much that, you know, these corporations have the power to set the scene and present some people as desirable yeah. and not, but they set the terms for self-presentation. Yeah. Yeah. And that will obviously first edit some people in and out, but also change the way everyone sees themselves because not only are you presenting yourself to other people, you're also presenting yourself to yourself. And um, mm. that'll change like your identity and uh, you yeah. know, your desires and what you, what you want to do. Yeah, and, and I think it, uh, it very much does. You know, I think it very much does. Yeah, good. Um, one of the other ideas in your book that I wanted to talk about was 
this idea of peak libido, the kind of societal shortage of desire. So could you tell us a little about that? Well, I mean, I'm just taking I'm taking this directly from a book I'd really recommend to, to listeners, which is by Dominic Petman, uh, which is called Peak Libido. And it, it takes this concept mm-hmm. from Stiegler, uh, which is basically and peak in this sense, like kind of like peak oil, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like basically the idea which is when it's it's all running out. Yeah, the idea that yeah. desire, this is in a sense a society without desire uh, or, uh-huh. or, or, or where desire we are just there's just a few little bits left <laughs> uh, which we're running off as a society why why do we have so little desire <laughs> yeah and, and i when i first read this book i thought this is interesting because it's the opposite of what i think i think that we are yeah. a society where which is primarily running and be, and all the conversations we've had today are based on the idea that desire mm. is is really at the heart of society and we're we're being our desires are being used but in in a, in a sense i think both can kind of be true um you know i think that yeah, and I suppose what I ended up sort of coming, the conclusion I ended up coming to on this was that I think we do have a, a lack of desire. And I think, you know, the stats, I mean, I as, as I said to you before, I don't do much stats, but, you know, <laughs> there is less sex going on uh, than um, mm-hmm. there was. And I, I think there's less enjoyment of food, probably, despite appearances to the contrary. You know, despite yeah. uh, despite a uh, obsession with Instagram eats yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I think somehow what's happened, and I don't know the solution, but somehow what's happened is our, our technologies and our politics have together managed to conjure up a situation where desire is is kind of in a peak condition, where there's not much of it, and instead we get all these kind of weird micro micro desires mm-hmm. that we're going following one after the other um, in a sort of horrible failed attempt to. It, it, you, you, it's like instead of <laughs> instead of you know working up an appetite and like going for this really lush meal instead we're just like scrolling through endless uh food accounts yeah. in the kind of you know use a like zombified simulacrum of yeah, yeah, of yeah. actual desire yeah. yeah uh instead of going out and meeting the love of your life you're uh, you know, swiping on a on an instead app. of building, yeah. I mean, I don't know if I want to go go as far as saying the love of your life, you know. Um, but but instead of building more um, significant uh, relationships and experiences which produce desire and uh-huh. uh, allow it to exist, yeah, we're we're um, instead going yes, desire zombies, lemmings, desire uh-huh. lemmings. That's what we all are. Well, what- <laughs> that you make about this <laughs> that uh <laughs> that like it relates to the peak libido point is you have this really interesting point about how on the one hand all this uh tech and social media in a way it inflames desire yeah but it's also always disappointing somehow like both the digital object yeah um, yeah it's right. disappointing in a way but also when we get the real thing it's also disappointing. So how does that? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. That uh, but that's that's a. I, I remember that now. <laughs> I'd forgotten <laughs> I wrote that. Um, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I found that. I don't know what I meant, but I, I found it fascinating. But because I've read the arguments both sides that. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. well, with the problem with when you talk to people about dating apps, you you, you commonly hear, well, they, when I got there, they weren't, they didn't look as good as their profile. 
Um, but and you also you also get it the other way around, you know. Uh, you know, like, oh, well, all I'm getting is this digital thing. It's not the real thing. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm watching porn because I can't <laughs> find sex kind of thing. Um, you know, so you get both arguments from very different political or, and social kind of quarters. Um, and that, I found that really interesting because what the what you're saying there is the whole the whole way we normally think is, you know, this division between the real and the digital. But actually what unites them is that they're both kind of unfulfilling. Uh, <laughs> so so yeah it's it's not it's not well in that way the digital world may just be as real as the real world and that's and exactly that it's, what I think. Uh, perpetually disappointing yeah it, I, I well i think that's right and it's not yeah but it doesn't hmm, yeah, i don't know i don't know if it needs to be that way but but there's there's something about the yeah there's something about the digital object that yeah, like I mean, again, the example works perfectly well, they're, they're for a disappointing burger, in it? different ways, right? Yeah, I mean, um, which is that the the picture of the perfect burger yeah. or the perfect sexual partner or something, yeah, that because it's only an image, it's like a promise of happiness to come. Yeah, it's it's exciting because it promises you something that you can project yes. your desires yeah. on. In in a sense, but yeah, encounter with the actual object, um can be disappointing yeah, yeah. because it does not yeah. live up to that. Yeah, like, like um, Michael Douglas. Both cases, the... you're, on the one hand, yeah, you're disappointed because it's not real. But on the other hand, you get what's real, but you're disappointed because it's not yes. a, a, a distant enough screen for your desire. Exactly, exactly. So so that's, I think that's quite right, a distant enough screen. You like it, yeah, when you talk about the burger, I was thinking about that scene in Falling Down where Michael Douglas goes to the Wendy's uh, yeah. and the picture of the burger. That's why it's and, in my head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's what triggers the sort of outburst. And I think that's interesting because the film is saying that actually this is too much to handle this gap between the uh-huh. uh the advertisement the image. image and the, and the reality uh-huh. <laughs> but but anyway yeah and I, I think um i think what's important there is is that that's how desire works you know so you know mm-hmm. yeah so we need to we need to wade through this we need to understand that that's how desire works you know and psychoanalysis has, has mm-hmm. uh, i guess uh, provided a kind of framework for that but then we need to then wade through this digital world we live in not by it's obviously not enough to think about this real life isn't good enough or the digital isn't good enough you know and that was that's where i I, Uh i'm aware that through most of what we've talked about today i seem quite sort of pessimistic and like i'm saying all of this is bad but i don't i don't want i don't think this can be solved by uh, escaping the digital and going back to reality. I don't think there is reality uh-huh. outside the digital. And, uh, you know, when people go and live on a commune and, and you know, get to uh, one with nature or whatever it is they do, I think this is the wrong solution. You know, this this there's no uh-huh. way of going back, you know. So, so yeah, we need new ways of thinking about the, the questions of desire and digital and real life and things like that we need to we can't go backwards and 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 i'm certainly not you know even though i think the situation is kind of bleak at the moment i I don't want Uh, us to to i don't want this to be interpreted as like a criticism of technology itself um you know it's not that at all it's just that you know I, i suppose what i think is um we need to reshape desire um for our own political agendas uh-huh. rather than <laughs> just letting ourselves be the desire lemmings of right, google or right. whatever it is that we are <laughs> don't don't let don't let okay cupid set the terms yeah uh, that we follow we, but try to set our own terms that will make uh, the world actually a better place yeah of yeah and, and i mean I tagline a better you know place. i won't go go into them but i in the book i did three like playful kind of semi-serious uh-huh. semi-joking 
suggestions, like little chapters which suggested how we could redesign technology. Like one was like for a wearable device, like how could we imagine a, mm-hmm. a progressive wearable device, like a Fitbit, uh, you know, yeah. uh, that's the part of the smart condoms. And one was a, a dating simulator, video game dating simulator that would have some kind of progressive sexual politics. And one was a, a dating app. You know, how could a dating yeah. app actually serve progressive social and, and cultural policies, ra- politics, rather than the ones that we're currently seeing? And, I, you know, those are not even, I, as I say, they're semi-humorous uh-huh. in the book. They're not even worth discussing. But but they do indicate that this is kind of the way I think we should go, not not rejecting yeah. Yeah, well, technology. I think, that, but- <laughs> I think it's like they're well worth discussing, you know. But, uh, I mean, that, but, it, but that's the point. It's like if the, the point of your discussion there is that at least as, as I understood it, is that now people think of, okay, what is the need? What is the pain point, as they say in corporatese, that this tech can solve? What can we give people that they want so they'll give us money? But you're saying, actually, what you haven't noticed is you're changing what people want. Mm. And if once we know we can do that, we can do it on purpose. Precisely. And, and we can you know, yes. try to shape desires in a way that we want them to be shaped exactly. instead of just exactly. that happen to be most profitable for, for the tech giants. Yeah, I mean, you've put that in a much better way than, than I did. You know, when I said that, you know, yeah, it's we, we don't need to be, you know, lemmings where, you know, if we if we recognize mm-hmm. the point that we are, desire is changing, this is great. And, and I'd go back here to someone like Donna Haraway, you know, in the 80s, uh, you know, she was writing from this kind of cyborg feminist perspective that the fact that our technologies are changing us presents a massive opportunity for feminism because we can actually think mm-hmm. about moving out of the patriarchal structures that we've been in and using technology to get us there. I, I think this is a similar moment in a certain way, but if we acknowledge that, uh, that we are in a moment where our desires are being radically changed by you know, both political actors and corporations, if we acknowledge that's true, then that means we can also change desire for, for the better. And we, and we should. Right. But, mean, okay, yeah. so, but then it's not that we don't have to be lemmings. It's that we are lemmings, but we can also be the player who controls the lemmings, right? Um, who, who sets the terms for our lemming-like behavior. Mm, exactly. And we will never have full control of this process. No one does. But what we can mm. do is, is try to, yeah, reshape our technologies in a way which we think yeah, this is a, a, a culturally, socially, or politically progressive way in which the technology could function uh, on us uh, as people, and I think I think it would work. You know, so, yeah, <laughs> I, I look. I would. I would. I want to see. I want to see everyone try. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I want to just pitch one more idea hmm. at you that came to me when you were talking about peak libido and zombified desires, and uh, this is a little kind of obscure inside baseball, but mm-hmm. I'll give it a shot. So. What I was getting from the peak libido point was part of the reason why desire is so exhausted is because it's being expended on all these little micro zombified ersatz desires, um, porn rather than sex or love, <laughs> etc. Now, if you think of ways people have tried to like, increase desire, one of the things you'd think of, especially when we're thinking about porn, is a kind of no fat movement. Which uh, is this right wing thing? Kind of proud boys are supposed to not masturbate, and that it's going to increase the like energy and desire uh, that they have that they can then <laughs> yeah. turn towards other things. So, 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 what do you think about this as like one of the responses to the uh, exhaustion of desire? Um, yeah, 
is already being kind of appropriated by weird fringe right wing groups. Yeah, I mean, actually, I'm, I'm happy you said that because it's part of the book we didn't mention at all. That is that some of it that I did, some of the stuff I wanted to look at was that weird stuff. You know, for, I looked yeah. at this group, um, sexual market value group, and the sort of, you know, basically chanboard, uh, you know, right wing mm. um, or right oriented kind of subcultures who, and like the Trump communities would be somehow loosely connected to this. But there are, there is the, the uh, or pickup artistry communities i also look at like uh-huh. you know so I, I think this is really important and all these weird symptoms and in in, in, a, in nina power's new book she talks about the no fap stuff the that her book is called what men want um and it's really interesting and i think that yeah what you what you're seeing here is i think the way you put the question is right these are symptoms of you know the, mm-hmm. these things are not well well we often see these presented in the media or by others as you look at these kind of weird, uh, weird cults who are, who are deciding to do something X, Y, Z way, and it's patriarchal, it's right wing. Sure, it, it is, you know, it is a patriarchal right wing way of conceiving the problem, but it's also a symptom to uh, our wider kind of capitalist, I'd say. Is um, it true that not jacking off is right wing? Uh, yeah, I reckon. <laughs> Maybe. No, like, I'm sure, I'm sure I mean, cer- certainly there's a historical precedent. It wasn't invented by Gavin McKenna. <laughs> yeah, I think the no fat thing, maybe. But yeah. 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 <laughs> but no, I suppose my point is that, you know, I think we shouldn't. Yeah, I, I think these. Well, OK, this is the point. I think the weird communities <laughs> of subcultural people who we sometimes maybe uh-huh. mistakenly or rightly associate with the rights have actually kind of got the right idea in a weird backwards way, because they mm-hmm. are at least trying to um, do something with this problem uh, of this kind of capitalist desire economy that we're in, whereas the left tends not to. And, and that's not always true. I mean, there are interesting like sex tech groups on the left. There are interesting like uh-huh. experimental. Uh, non-binary and trans brothels uh, with which use like se- weird sex robots trialing new forms of sex tech and things like that i think that's all important uh-huh. and useful and positive and i but i think for the most part yeah i mean yeah i mean so so we've got a weird situation where the devi- all the deviancy seems to be happening <laughs> on weird subcultural right-leaning communities but what we actually need is a left deviancy on all this yeah <laughs> yeah which probably doesn't yeah exist. look i love that <laughs> i mean the, the the problem is that um yeah the power of deviancy has been appropriated by the right yeah uh yeah, yeah. And, and that's where we are isn't it and in other ways too uh you know so so yeah i think um yeah no I think it's interesting. Great. Hey, I think that's like probably a good place to yeah, leave it. Yeah, but thank you so much for coming on. That was super interesting. And, you know, you've mentioned a tons, tons of stuff. This is a, this is a short book. It's like 140 pages long, but it's rich. It was There's a ton of other stuff in it. So, you know, go and read it. If you want to learn more about what smart condoms are or porn and deconstruction and psychoanalytic theory. Uh, it's a lot of fun to read, and it was a lot of fun talking. So thanks, Alfie. That was great. Yeah, it's really fun. Thanks uh, so much for having me on, and thanks, everyone, for listening as well. Cheers. Special shout-out today to Ramon Diaz-Fernandez, who decided to become a Patreon sponsor of Good in Theory. Thank you, Ramon. We appreciate your support, and Thanks to all of you for listening. I'll catch you next time.